turn to John 6. We read this in accordance with our treatment of Lord's Days 29 and the first question and answer of Lord's Day 30. We have here the feeding of the 5,000, and then after that, Jesus' sermon to the followers. And so we begin reading at John 6, verse 27, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Or not through the end of the chapter, read through verse 59, sorry. John 6, verse 27 through 59. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 29. In the back of our Psalters on page 17, we have question and answers 78, 79, and 80. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God. So the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ Jesus. Why then doth Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks thus, not without great reason, namely not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink, whereby our souls are fed to eternal life. The more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him, and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own person suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to his human nature is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass, at bottom, is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes it may seem to us that the Heidelberg Catechism is spending too much time on the sacraments. 
We need to remember that there was much controversy over the sacrament of the Lord's Supper during the time of the Reformation. And not only was there violent disagreement with Rome, there also was disagreement within the Reformation churches, between the Lutheran, the Reformed, the Anabaptist. When the Catechism was written in Heidelberg under the rule of Frederick III, the Palatine had just gone through a significant controversy between the Reformed and the Lutheran. And it's not surprising then that his desire was to see to it that the Catechism included information that would be thorough and that would address the distinctions not only between the Reformed and the Roman Catholic, but the Reformed also and the Lutheran. Now that was 450 plus years ago. What about today? Beloved, the question is still of the greatest importance. Evangelical churches are confused about the nature of the sacrament. Reformed churches are confused. There's, in general, a mad rush back to Rome. There's an emphasis in our day on the outward, the superstitious power of the sacrament. There's the idea that everybody that eats and drinks somehow benefits, and therefore a promotion to feed it to our children, even to our babies. Give them grape juice in a bottle in order that somehow they can have an automatic benefit from the sacrament. The view of Rome with regard to baptism and the Lord's Supper has not changed one bit. And so it's good for us to know as Reformed churches, where do we stand on these important questions? And this afternoon we face this question. How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? How does the Lord's Supper work? How is it that we're nourished by the Lord's Supper? The Reformed always have stressed the spiritual presence of Christ in the Supper. And that's what we take as our theme, the spiritual presence of Christ. Noting, first of all, the erroneous views, secondly, the spiritual presence, and finally, the necessity of faith. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the bread and the wine are literally changed into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Once the priest says the words, the elements are changed, and they insist they stay that way. They never turn back. And so they call that transubstantiation. There is a transformation as to the substance. And the substance then of the bread and the wine are no longer bread and wine. They now have been transformed into the body of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. So that once the bread is changed, once the wine is changed, it's all to be eaten or drank or to be kept in a special place where nobody else can get at it. Because that wine now is the blood of Jesus and to spill it then would be sacrilegious. Therefore, they won't allow that wine to be touched. They would have then the blood of Christ on their clothes or on the floor. And with respect to bread, similarly, they use wafers that don't crumble because you don't want crumbs again falling and then the mice eating pieces of Christ. And now the mice somehow are benefited in that way. And so they distribute the wafers carefully with the tongs on the tongue of the individual. It would be against sacrilege in their estimation to touch Christ with their fingers. Once that transformation takes place then in the Mass, the elements we can understand are to be worshipped. They are no longer bread and wine. They're now Christ. And they've been transformed from the earthly now to the spiritual. And so they're held in high regard. 
as parades would pass by, the clerics would hold the elements up and the people were required to kneel, to bow down, because this was Christ who was represented. It used to even be the case that when the priest would enter into a public place to celebrate the Eucharist, like a hospital perhaps, coming in with the wafers, the nurses and the patients and the visitors were all required and expected to kneel when that priest would walk by because of what he was carrying. Now the Roman Catholic Church is quick to say, but this is a different kind of worship than the worship that we give to God. And they try to have two different kinds of worship. One worship that's directed to God, another that distinguishes the adoration of saints and the elements of the Mass. But despite their attempts to distinguish, they stand condemned by the scriptures as promoting idolatry, the worship of the creature instead of the creator. And it's for that reason that the catechism then rightly condemns the Roman mass as an accursed idolatry. Now this wrong, this wicked idea rose out of the idea of the mass. And that's Question and answer 80. Question and answer 80 really fits better with the points that 79, 78 and 79 make, and therefore we include it this week in with this Lord's Day. When the priest takes the body, when the priest takes the blood of Christ now, he offers a sacrifice before God. And that's why the whole process takes place not on a table like we do, but they call it an altar. Because now an offering is being made. And so understandably, this was the first thing the reformers got rid of when they took over and reformed the Roman Catholic churches. They got rid of the altars and they replaced them with pulpits that were placed in the center of the sanctuary describing the fact that the preaching of the gospel was the most important aspect of the worship. But the priest is called a priest because he offers sacrifices. And in their estimation, this sacrifice then is even more significant, more powerful than what was offered up by the Old Testament priests. The Old Testament priests were just offering up bullocks and lambs. If they are honest with themselves, the Roman Catholic priests would admit, we are offering Christ. We're not just offering bullocks and lambs. We're offering now Christ. And that puts the priest then in a category where he now is ultimately making the same sacrifice that Jesus did when Jesus was on the cross. The the priest participates in the regular sacrifices of Christ. Now, even though it's not bloody, it's a continuation, they would say, of what Christ did on Calvary. That means, as we understand, the Sacrifice of Christ then was not sufficient. Jesus' one sacrifice was not all that was necessary. Now we need more. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't complete. This is what makes of the Mass then an accursed idolatry not only because it's worshiping the creature instead of the creator, or the the creature instead of the creator, but also makes it a denial of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, as question and answer 80 clearly and emphatically sets forth. This is strong language. We need to remember this. 
The ones who wrote the catechism were for the most part those who were coming out of Roman Catholicism. They came out of that error. And now they did not want to mince words as they sought to be a witness to their loved ones and to others who yet remained in that tragic error. And now as they witnessed to those, they wanted to be clear. They saw it necessary to speak strong language that would emphatically witness to them the truth concerning the Lord's Supper. And they were willing to do so knowing that it was going to bring upon them terrible persecution. The boldness here of God's children must be acknowledged. As they wrote this and as they spoke and as they promoted it, the wrath of Rome came upon them. And Rome killed many. So that the blood that's on the hands of Rome is significant as they killed faithful, godly Christians who stood for what was right according to the scriptures. They were compelled by their conscience to speak the truth over against the lie. This position of Rome is a lie. It's a violation of the ninth commandment as they teach something that really does not take place. It does not happen. Not only is it an accursed idolatry, a denial of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it's a lie. God does not so confuse our sacrifice our senses, that what previously was wine, all of a sudden no longer is wine. If it smells like wine, tastes like wine, looks like wine, it's not blood. Rome says, no, it's blood. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 call the elements wine and bread after what would have been considered their point of transfiguration, transubstantiation. After, supposedly now, the pastor has spoken the words, yet, the apostle says, it's still bread. It's still wine. Now, more seriously, the position of Rome represents this significant error. God's grace is now found in physical, literal things. And if that's the case, then, we can get grace by just eating or partaking in those physical, literal things. So I can drink wine, and I get grace. And the more wine I drink, the more grace I get. The more bread I eat, the more grace I get. And so now I can come to Mass every single day, and I can get more grace, and I can even get more grace. So that grace now is applied in a literal, mechanical fashion. Grace somehow is brought into me by my physical teeth, my eating, my digestive system. Somehow, my digestive system results now in some spiritual grace. God's grace, beloved, is not applied in such a literal, figurative manner. And this is the fault of Reformed and Presbyterian churches in our day who promote pedo communion, teaching children benefit from the sacrament in some kind of automatic way, encouraging young children, even babies, to partake and believing that somehow, without the exercise of faith now, by their partaking, they're somehow getting grace. That's not the way God's grace operates. God's grace is only through faith, and God's grace is only through his elect, 
Our controversy with Rome then, beloved, is not something ancient. It's not something outdated. God's grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ are what are at stake. Are God's grace and Christ's righteousness found in physical things? Are God's grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to everybody who partakes? We insist the reprobate who partake do not receive grace when they eat the sacrament. Though elect and reprobate have all things in common, including the sacraments, there is no grace apart from God's work of his spirit by faith. The gracious operation of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the elect is necessary. And beloved, that truth needs to be set forth clearly, sharply, and distinctly also in our day. Now, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my body, this is my blood. How could he say this when he was handling bread with his own body? His hands were holding the bread. How could he make that statement? And notice, when he spoke concerning the wine, he did not claim the wine merely to be his blood. He said, the cup is my blood. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. So to take it literally then, we would have to say the cup is turned into the blood of Jesus Christ. And we understand, obviously, Jesus was speaking here in a figurative manner. And we understand it then figuratively. The position of Rome reduces the sacrament to chewing and swallowing with one's mouth and one's teeth. And it gives magical properties then to the bread and to the wine so that somehow grace now is diffused through the body in some miraculous way by the physical process of digestion. Even more serious again, everyone who eats the bread and the wine is spiritually blessed by God. Even the ungodly priest who's guilty of the most grievous forms of abuse and fornication, he's being blessed now with grace, as he partakes of the sacrament. Everything is automatic. There's an automatic grace to it, regardless of whether that person is thinking about Christ, whether he's living for God or living for the devil. You don't need faith. The bread and the wine work by their own power. Somehow, these physical elements then are translated into the human body, into grace. Now, that's impossible The Mass is nothing less than a denial of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ and a cursed idolatry and a lie. Now it's important for us to understand that the Lutherans do not differ substantially from Rome. While we can't justify Martin Luther, it is important to try to understand what his position was. Why did Martin Luther insist so strenuously on taking literally the words of Jesus? During Martin Luther's day, the radical Anabaptists were trying to take over the Reformation. And they maintained a radical movement that interpreted the word of God according to their own ideas, according to their own thoughts. It was very subjective. Whatever they thought the word would mean, that would be the significance of it. And so what they would feel, what they would experience would be the important thing. Each person then doing his own thing 
on the basis of his own subjective experience of what he felt the word to be or what he thought the word's application ought be. And they were justifying all of these subjective thoughts and experiences as God's will. Understandably, Martin Luther was incensed with that loose interpretation of Scripture. And his point was, you need to be objective. We need to hold literally to the teaching of God's word. You can't just be subjectivizing it and interpreting it in whatever way you want. And so distressed, so angered he was over this total subjectivizing of the word of God that he overreacted in his emphasis of the need, the Bible needs to be taken literally. We need to insist on literal understanding of the scriptures. He didn't dare say anything else other than Christ is objectively present in the body, in the blood, bread and in the wine. And if Jesus said it, that's the way it has to be, was his insistence. And so Lutherans today continue to believe and to teach the same, but there's a tremendous variation among the Lutherans. They call it consubstantiation. When the bread and wine are served, they insist, the elements aren't changed, but Christ is present bodily around it. And they use the illustration of a bar of iron. If you put a bar of iron in the fire, then eventually that bar of iron is going to be hot. It's going to get red hot. And just as that bar of iron now carries the heat, so they say the bread and wine carry the body and the blood of Jesus. So that physically Jesus is present through the bread and the wine. They're the carriers of Jesus' true body and true blood. Lutheranism then teaches properties in the bread and wine that would dispense grace automatically again to everybody who eats and drinks. And so that idea, again, that there's automatic grace is evident. And that makes both Lutherans and Roman Catholics essentially Pelagian in their approach to salvation. Salvation now is up to man. How is that so? Everybody receives grace. But they would insist, not everybody's going to go, go to heaven. Not everybody's going to be saved. So what's the difference? Why is it that everybody receives grace, but only some get to heaven? The difference is what they do with that grace. So that salvation now is up to man. It's up to how man responds. Now Zwingli was absolutely disgusted with the carnal perspectives of the Catholics and of the Lutherans. He claimed overreacting that it was just a memorial feast. All the church was doing is just remembering what Jesus did at Calvary when Jesus died on the cross. Was there a spiritual benefit? Yes, there would be a spiritual benefit, even many spiritual benefits, he would insist, but they came in the way of just remembering it. It would be like taking a picture of a loved one that you have setting on the mantle, and you look at it, and you remember your loved one. You remember all the fun times you had with him, all the things he did. There's a benefit from that. That would be the benefit. He insisted, just a memorial feast where we meditate on what he did for us. The Reformed always said, Zwingli is right, but there's more. Jesus himself called it a feast of remembrance, so we agree that it is a feast of remembrance, but there's more. And the more is that there's a spiritual presence. No physical, as the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics insist, but there is a spiritual presence. And so we look at that, secondly, the spiritual presence. 
The Reformed Fathers who followed the Calvinistic tradition were given by God an understanding of the sacrament that we give thanks for and that we continue today to build on. They didn't overreact to Rome nor to the Anabaptists. We thank God that God directed them back to the Bible and patiently they opened up the scriptures in order carefully to lay out what is the teaching of scripture. We have to remember that when dealing with various matters. Easy it is to overreact one way or to overreact another way. Avoid the extremes. Go to the Bible. Carefully lay out the whole counsel of God. And that's what the Reformers did, especially John Calvin, as he laid out clearly from Scripture the teachings that we, by God's grace, embrace. When we eat the bread and the wine... We really do eat and drink Christ. Notice question and answer 76 of Lord's Day 28, going back to the previous Lord's Day. We eat and drink Christ. Notwithstanding, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, we insist, so that we don't stray away from that language. The Belgic Confession similarly shares that language in Article 35. Now, that's difficult to understand. It's difficult for us to grasp. How is it that we eat and drink Christ? We're so earthly-minded, and this truth is so profoundly spiritual. And so how to understand that wonder? You and I are not so spiritual. We're very earthly-minded, and we're so much a part of this world that we have a hard time understanding what it is to eat and drink Christ spiritually. When we get to heaven, we won't celebrate the Lord's Supper anymore like we do now, but then we'll finally have an understanding of what is taking place with regard to the sacrament. The first thing that must be stressed is that when we eat and drink, we do eat and drink Christ. Christ is spiritually present, just as he's present through the preaching of the gospel. Not literally, spiritually. And he works faith in the hearts of his children so that they receive the word he works faith in connection with the sacrament so that they embrace it, lay hold on Christ crucified through that sacrament. But secondly, it's important that we not ascribe any power to the sacrament itself. The bread and wine are signs, seals of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary. The sacrament is added to the preaching. The Reformers never felt it necessary to have the Lord's Supper in the homes of shut-ins. The Roman Catholic Church insisted on that. The, Rome, the Reformed Churches said, no, that's not necessary. They can be nourished and they can be fed without the sacraments. The sacraments belong to the church institute. They belong to the official worship of the church. And we continue to hold those principles of the Reformation. And we must continue to stay faithful to those principles. God is faithful to use the words of the minister, the elders, others that bring words of comfort to those in the hospital, encouraging them in their homes, in nursing homes, as well as private Bible readings, so that they live by faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be careful not to subscribe power to the sacrament. And sometimes that even can be the case with us. People will not think twice about missing a worship service, but then if we're having the Lord's Supper, we better make sure that we're there. 
implying somehow that we're going to get more out of the Lord's Supper than we would out of an ordinary service. Now, in a certain sense, we appreciate that. We desire to maintain the sacraments. We want them. But we also recognize the priority of the preaching and the fact that the preaching is primary. The sacraments are secondary. So that even in a mission situation where the sacraments may not be administered for some years, the congregation yet is spiritually being fed. We're not cleaving to the external bread and wine. That's the admonition of our form. We lift them up on high in heaven where Jesus Christ is our advocate. And we look for our souls to be fed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when the sacrament is being administered, we don't stare at the bread. We don't stare at the little cup of wine. The elements don't draw our attention, but rather we're to look beyond them to Christ. Jesus was invisible as to his raised spiritual body. And remember his appearances after his resurrection into heaven, or after his resurrection from the dead. He entered the presence of the disciples without even using doors. He was able to pass through walls. He knew about previous conversations that the disciples had so that spiritually he was able to understand that they had talked about him, they had done so about Thomas's doubts, he had been present, he heard that, and then later on, he's able to come back and confront Thomas about these things. He didn't have an earthly body. He had a heavenly body that had been raised. When we go to heaven, we also will receive those changed bodies after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that on the basis of 1 Corinthians 15, and we know that we will be made like unto the glorious body of Christ. Now, we can't weigh that spiritual body on a scale. That spiritual body can't be submitted to surgery. It's a spiritual body, something like the angels, but even more glorious because it's Christ's body. Now, so it is with regard to then our spiritual partaking of the sacrament and our spiritual eating and drinking of Christ. It can't be physical. It's a spiritual activity. The food that we receive, therefore, from eating and drinking the body and the blood has to be spiritual benefits and spiritual food. Now, that's striking, and it comes out powerfully here in John 6. In John 6, Jesus said, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. But if you eat this food, you will never die. Now, he's not talking there about digestible food. He's talking about the wonder of food for the soul. And he makes clear that he's talking about himself. And so in verses 49, verse 53, he makes reference to that. Verse 53, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Now the Roman Catholic Church take this reference and say, this is a reference to the Mass. Look how important the Mass is. If you don't partake of the Mass, then you have no life in you. But then all of a sudden they realize, oops, this says too much. This proves too much. This means that anybody who does not partake of the mass goes to hell. They don't have life in them. And they don't want to go there. And so they backpedal and they try to figure out a way to get around that. But that ought to demonstrate to us that's not what Jesus here is getting at. Jesus is not talking about some physical opportunity by which we eat and we drink and therefore we have life. He's talking about food for the soul. 
He's talking about the wonder by which we are fed not only with an earthly life, an earthly food, but at the same time, our spiritual life is being preserved and kept by God. We need Christ. We need the wonder of salvation. We can't go through life without Christ. And so in pride sometimes, we think we can. We think we don't need Christ. We don't need spiritual food. And we behave that way. And that tragically is the way in which at times these individuals that Jesus here is interacting with did so that many of them turned away. But then Jesus had to ask the disciples, are you also going to go? And then in verse 69, we believe and are sure thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. We need Christ, and we need Christ for our spiritual life. Now, that spiritual life is a life that will not be taken from us to all eternity. We will never lose it. What was the mistake of the rich fool? He said to himself, soul, thou hast much laid up for thyself. He felt that his soul would be preserved by earthly goods. Could his soul eat corn? Could his soul eat meat? Of course not. You could eat all you want, and still you're going to die and go to hell. The spiritual food is necessary that nourishes the spiritual life, which is from Christ. And that's the important food. Now, we can get so wrapped up in our three meals a day, consider it so important that we eat, that we don't think so much, and we don't put the emphasis as we ought on the necessity of that spiritual food and drink. How much thought, how much significance do we give to that spiritual food and drink that our souls need? Christ gives that food to us. He feeds us by his word and by his spirit through the preaching and the sacraments. Now, how is Christ present? He's present in the sacrament, first of all, through his word. Whenever the minister administers the sacrament, he does so in the name of Christ. And Christ is the host of that sacrament. He's the one who holds the bread up and the wine. Christ is the one who's speaking through the word that's being spoken. Even though we can't see him, we hear him. Christ is the one calling us, come. He's the one that's calling us to drink. He's the one that's calling us to eat. We know that he's present, but not in a physical way. He's present spiritually. He says, this is my body, which was broken for you. This is my blood which was poured out for you. And so he's present then by his spirit. And that spirit dwells within us. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That spirit of Christ dwells within his church. And that spirit gives us Christ himself. Now that's a mystery. How can Christ's spirit dwell in us in such a way that Christ is the re- result of that wonder, and that we grow in Christ. The Spirit doesn't leave Christ. The Spirit dwells in both of us. And because of that wonder, makes mysteriously us one with Christ. So that now the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us makes it so that we are united with Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense. And as Christ's Spirit works in us, we're more and more united to his blessed body by faith. 
We understand in connection with that marriage. Marriage is a mystery too. How is it that I can be one flesh with my wife? It's more than just the physical and the sexual. There's a union here that's intimate. Now it's troubled by sin often, but that union is established by God. And it's difficult sometimes for us to understand how is it that that intimate union is such that we're no longer two, but we're one. By grace we confess it. And we look forward to the day again in glory when it all be clear. But that's the closest that we can come with an earthly type. Jesus Christ unites himself to us by faith. And by faith, we confess our union with him. And what a joy that union is. As we go through life, as we face challenges, struggles, as we face death, as we face the end of all things, our confession is, I am not alone. I have Christ. He's the one who is my life and my strength. When I face judgment, I will not face it alone. In times of anxiety, times of sorrow, we have that precious assurance. Christ is dwelling within me. When our hearts are to the point of being broken in sorrow and distress, we cry out, and God gives us to know, I'm with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And there's a peace that comes over us, a peace that defies explanation as God gives us to know that we are Christ's and that Christ dwells with us and in us by his spirit. We experience this, do we not? Sometimes we're delivered from a very difficult circumstance or situation and God gives us a victory in a remarkable way and we're overcome with thanksgiving, overcome with gratitude to God. And there's a nearness, there's a peace in that union that is ours with God that is so great and so marvelous that it can't compare to anything else of life. That's the wonder of that union that Jehovah God establishes in Jesus Christ with his elect. Now the necessity of faith then is evident. The sacrament is a spiritual operation, but it occurs only through faith. Faith is the bond by which we're united to Christ. God establishes that bond by a wonder of his grace. And he gives that gift of faith to his elect, making us one with Christ. Now this is the mystery that's expressed in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. And that one bread is Christ. Now faith as a gift from God that joins us to Christ, shows itself in activity. You'll recall Lord's Day 7 talks about the essence of faith being that bond that unites us to Christ by which we're engrafted. But then that faith now bears fruit, and the fruit of that faith is knowledge and confidence. When we're talking about faith in connection with the Lord's Supper, we're talking about the fruit, the activity of that faith. We know Christ. We believe in him. We have confidence in him. And we're nourished unto everlasting life by tasting the wonder of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Now generally for us, nourishment involves activity. And spiritually, it's no different. We know that it's possible for someone in a hospital to get direct nourishment through an IV. But that's not how God ordinarily operates in our lives. We eat. 
we drink. The Lord's Supper requires the activity of faith. Faith that lays hold on God, lays hold on Jesus Christ and the perfect sacrifice that he offered for my salvation. And the activity of faith is such that we eat Christ's flesh, we drink his blood, we draw near to him in a true and living faith, and we know the forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting. If we're to draw that life from Christ, a wonder has to take place. God first put that life within us. There must be spiritual life within us, and therefore it's only God's elect who are united to Christ by faith who benefit then from that sacrament. If an unbelieving sinner comes into contact with Christ, there's no saving activity. If he comes into contact with Christ through the preaching, he's hardened. If he comes into contact with Christ through the sacrament, similarly, he's only going to be hardened. When the believer comes into contact with Christ, there's a response. And God works a marvelous response. There's a desire, there's a hungering, there's a thirsting, there's a longing for more. And there's a desire for Christ. He lays hold on Christ and the nourishment that is in Jesus Christ. That operation that Jesus Christ performs through faith isn't something, again, that we can comprehend. There's something mysterious here. Just as there's something mysterious about the way Christ is present through the preaching and how Christ, by his Spirit, applies that word to our hearts. And sometimes we go away saying, how did the minister know that? He didn't know, but the Spirit did, and the Spirit made that application. There's a mystery. There's a wonder there. As the Spirit makes that application, and as the Spirit causes that preaching to work fruit in our lives, Christ speaks, and we respond with obedience. He says, eat, and we eat. He says, drink, and we drink. And we don't just do so with our physical mouth. We do it with a spiritual mouth of faith as we partake of Christ, and we delight in Jesus Christ. This, beloved, is the marvelous operation, the spiritual presence of Christ, and the spiritual operation that the catechism here is speaking of in connection with God's word. The spiritual food and drink of Christ become ours so perfectly that we're able to confess in the last part of question answer 79, we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. I am one with him. I'm united to him. And as I eat that bread, as I drink that wine by faith, I believe just as that wine and that bread become part of me, so I belong to Christ. And just as after a couple hours, you could not separate that bread and wine from my body, no one can separate me from Jesus Christ. There's a union there that Jehovah God has established by faith as a living union. Christ strengthens our faith in the confidence of the forgiveness of sins and the perfection of his perfect work. 
He knows that we're sinners, and we know our sinfulness. We know our unworthiness. But what does God do? God directs us away from self. He directs us away from our own circumstances, and he directs us, look at Christ. Look at what Christ did for you. Look at your union to him. That's your encouragement. That's your strength. You are weak, but he is strong. You will falter. You're going to fall back into that same sin again. But he will preserve and keep you because he is faithful. And Christ strengthens our faith then in his word, in his promises. And he causes through the preparation of the sacrament, through the sacrament, through the consideration of the applicatory sermon of that sacrament, that we more fully see our union with Christ. We see our need for him. We're pricked by how often we think that we can live apart from him. And we're prompted to greater diligence and faithfulness as we confess our sins, as we look to him, and as we confess our union, our walk with him. We understand, beloved, by grace I'm a partaker, not by nature, by grace. And by grace I am united to Christ, not by anything of myself, it's all of grace. And by grace, then, I will live unto him a life of thankful praise and adoration. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen our faith in thy word and thy promises. Thou hast given unto us a glorious and a wondrous salvation. Thou hast given unto us to know that we sinners, saved by the wonder of thy grace, have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. That our value, our worth, is found in the wonder of that union and that we are to abide in him and to live unto him in all things. Strengthen us and we pray that the preaching and the sacraments might be means by which thou dost strengthen our faith and cause that we might grow in our love and devotion to thee. Amen.